0: Hallelujah. Praise you, O Lord. Father, I pray that we would be able to join with those through Scripture who are recognized even by our Lord Himself when Jesus said, That Isaiah rejoiced to see my day, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Father, I pray that as your Scriptures are open this morning, that we would see your day to the proclamation and revelation of the glorious plan of redemption, prophesied, fulfilled, prefigured of old, and absolutely established forever, the reality of the only hope for salvation in Jesus Christ in time, in the incarnation and the finished work of the cross, which was sealed with the resurrection and ascension and rule of our Lord and Savior. We thank you that as we turn to these precious scriptures, that have been delivered to us at the cost of those preserving them, often giving their own lives, that we hold in our hand the glorious treasure that will surpass this life. I pray that we would realize their value today, that the Spirit would use the proclamation of your truth to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to embrace these means, to fellowship with the saints, to offer our prayers of supplication, our expressions of glory, our confessions of confidence in the truth of your Scripture. And also, Lord, to witness and to proclaim the fruit of salvation, continuing in the offer of hope in Christ alone, announced and proclaimed to our world even today. And as you do so, we pray that you would reap for yourself a great harvest, that souls would come into the kingdom of God through confession of sin and faith in Christ alone as your church remains faithful to proclaim the only way, truth, and life. Lord, open our ears to hear and eyes to see these things and more in the pages of your holy scriptures today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the great privilege of opening up the scriptures to Genesis 22. So as you're able, would you turn there with me today and let us consider a chapter in Abraham's life? If not the most profound, certainly among the most profound, I'm going to vote that this is the most profound chapter in Abraham's life. Rudy, if you want to bring up those lights when you get a chance, it would be awesome, thanks. The title of this morning's message is The Mount of the Lord. And this title comes from the pages of our scripture text today. Verse 14, Genesis 22. The Lord will provide was the name of the place, according to Abraham. Why? Because on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, became the saying, because of the events that occurred in this chapter of the patriarch's history. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the promises of God superseding death. The promises of God indeed, supersede death. That is one of the major themes in Abraham's life, that he came to confess and to realize with his faith now stirred. And the aim of this morning's message is to indeed proclaim his testimony that our faith might in turn be stirred, that we would truly believe and truly hold out by way of our own personal testimonies that the promises of God are more powerful. They supersede death. As you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today with your Bible open to, again, Genesis 22, 1-14? Let us consider the holy and inerrant Word of our Lord in these verses. Listen as His Word is proclaimed. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Then Abraham said to his young men, "Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you." Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, "My father." And he said, "Here am I, my son." And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14, So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Genesis 22 provides another striking instance marking an extraordinary milestone of faith in the life of Abraham. May you recall Genesis 21. Remember, the chapter begins with an altercation with Abimelech in which Abraham is clearly the inferior, disguising his true identity in order to escape death by a king he feared more powerful than him, Indeed, a king, to his shame, he feared more powerful than the promises of God. There is a shift. The tables turn. Abraham goes from fear to confidence. By the end of the chapter, in a second interaction with the same king, Abraham is the greater, Abimelech the lesser. Abraham sets the tone and provides the sacrifice, and everything changes. And we ask ourselves, what's the result? Pardon me, that would be Genesis 20 and 21, or I can't remember exactly. But in between those two events, something major happened. Genesis 21 records Abraham, the patriarch's interaction with the documenting a distinct change of roles between these two national figureheads. Why the sudden confidence and authority assumed on the part of Abraham who entered this land, disguising his covenant identity, fearing for his life? In context... So another way to ask this question, what happened between those two events that made the difference? In context, we can only conclude it was the miracle birth of the promised son that made all of the difference in this scenario. After the arrival of Isaac, it is apparent in the text that Abraham is a different man, if it could be said in in one sense. Today, as we turn to the next chapter, chapter 22, our text, we find Further testimony of Abraham's godly resolve by way of an excruciating trial, which will serve to show just how strong this new growing faith, this growing faith, truly is. Don't forget that Abraham and Sarah have already experienced the divine power of resurrection in the birth of their son. Abraham and Sarah have already experienced in the birth of their son a barren womb springing to life divine power of resurrection and the birth of their son, prior to facing the prospect of the death of their son in this chapter. As such, they illustrate profoundly the before and after picture of faith. And this we get from Hebrews 2 compared with Hebrews 11. The before faith picture? Well, the scriptures say, those, that is the unbelieving, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the before faith Subject to lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. What's the after picture? 11.35, Hebrews. Among other things, women received back, quote, women received back their dead by resurrection. Before, slavery through lifelong fear of death. After, women received their dead back from resurrection. This happened, figuratively, to Sarah herself and to Abraham. Before the birth of Isaac, I want you to recall age Welcoming the last enemy, that is age-welcoming death, was perhaps Abraham's greatest fear. Genesis 15, 1-2, the Lord says, I will be your shield and buckler, fear not, Abraham. And he exclaims, yes, but. And what is the but in Abraham's mind? Why is he struggling so? Why does he fear? There is no heir among my own seed, the promised family, me and my wife, whom I can uh, look to to find confidence that your promises will continue. Abraham is afraid that death, that age, that barrenness will stand in the way of God's promises. How did this event of Isaac's birth change him? Genesis 22 answers, In light of our text, it is no wonder Abraham and Sarah are featured so prominently in Hebrews 11:8 8 through 19, a passage for further study which declares by conclusion, Hebrews 11:19, 19, that Abraham considered that God was able to raise his son up, and then we might add, not only from the barren womb, but even from the dead. With that introduction, I have a heading and three phrases drawn from our text to organize our thoughts today. This morning, let us heading consider the offering of Isaac in light of three contextual themes. Let's consider the offering of Isaac in light of three themes. Number one, verses one through five, the testing of Abraham. Second major theme, verses six through 10, the fire and the knife. And and third theme, the Lord's provision, 11 through 14. We can better understand the offering of Isaac in light of the testing of Abraham, the fire and the knife, instruments of offering and sacrifice. And thirdly, the Lord's provision. First of all, 1 through 5. What was God's intention in this act? We see right away. And followed by a reference in verse 12, the following. After these things, God tested Abraham. What was God seeking to accomplish in this event? Well, one thing we see right at the beginning, He was testing him. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, to which Abraham responds, here am I. Now, this test concludes, so to speak, in verse 12 when God responds to Abraham's obedience by saying, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That is to say, test completed. The commentator Barnes writes the following. Listen closely to this quote, and then I'll expand on some central ideas. Quote, The original... I have known, so what he's referring to there is the original language, I have known, or in our translation here, the ESV, um, for now I know. So the original, I have known, or for now I know, denotes an eventual knowing. That doesn't mean gradually, like we use the word eventually most commonly. It means knowing by event, by a happening. The original, quote, I have known, denotes an eventual knowing, a discerning by actual experiment. This observable probation, which means test, this observable test, you could say, of Abraham was necessary for the judicial eye of God, who is to govern the world, and for the consciousness of man, who is to be instructed by practice as well as principle. So what is Barnes saying? Well, let me expand on his comments by giving you the following. And I'll say this slowly in case you need to write it down. I think it's an important sentence to glean the truth of this event and to prevent us from stumbling into error. Here's the sentence. That which is known only to God by virtue of His decree is now made known through His servant by virtue of its manifestation in time. Let me say it again that by which or that which is known only to god by virtue of his decree is now made known through his servant by virtue of its manifestation in time so why do i bring this up because there is a question that might come to mind did god learn something he didn't know previous to this event answer unequivocal no therefore what in what sense was Abraham tested, and in what sense was further knowledge gleaned as a result, as a result? Well, in this sense, what God knew all along by his omniscience, that is, ability to know everything, or by his decree, which means his perfect plan that encompasses all. What God had known all along was now made manifest in the event, as Barnes says, it was actually took a place, was confirmed in time, manifested in time, through his servant, Abraham. Now, this concept might be difficult to grasp at first, but it is worth the time of meditation to understand. That which is known to God by virtue of his decree, in this case, the faith of Abraham, that the promises of God supersede death, was now made known by God through his servant by virtue of its manifestation in time. And Barnes says that this is to the benefit of the reader, indeed, you and me. Well, another way to put it is, if Abraham was never tested unto death in the case of his son, the manifestation of his faith, that he believed God was more powerful than the last and greatest enemy, his one-time greatest fear would not be known to his family, to Abimelech, to the inhabitants of Beersheba, to the successful succeeding generations, or to you and I as I read it. So you see, the Lord tests; he brings this trial upon Abraham in part for the purpose of proclaiming that the work that he had done in this man's heart now gave him a confidence in Jesus that said, the promise that affirmed the promises of God are more powerful than the wages of sin. The promises of God are more powerful than the first and last enemy, death itself. The testimony of Abraham evident in these events declares to us and to the world, and in time, the promises of God supersede death. They are greater than death. This is true of all redemptive history. Jesus Christ, in the decree of God, was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Yet Jesus Christ came in time so that the plan and purposes of God might be manifest for the benefit of those who see his death and resurrection take place according to God's fulfillment and fullness and purposes in history, repent and believe. What is happening to Abraham is a pattern of God's revelation that will attend the way of redemption all the way through God's scripture, all the way through history. The testing of Abraham thus reveals God's intentions. Secondly, let us note Abraham's submission. In the testing of Abraham, we have this repeated phrase, Here am I. It's actually repeated three times, but twice in answering the Lord. So the first time, Abraham or the God tested Abraham, verse 1, and said to him, Abraham, and he, Abraham, said, Here am I. Does that phrase sound familiar? Hey, kids, kids, I have a question for you. Can you think of anybody maybe close to your age in the Scripture when they heard the voice of the Lord in the nighttime, they said, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears, or here am I. Do you you guys know who I'm talking about? There's a kid, maybe four or five years old. God spoke to him in the night hour. Let's hear it again. Samuel. Samuel is correct. Yes, the Lord spoke to his servant, in the case of Samuel, a little boy, who was counseled by the high priest. And when the Lord spoke, he said, here am I. Now, what is evident in this phrase, here am I? Well, clearly in the context here, And in the testimony of other servants of old through the pages of Scripture, it's a posture of heeding God's Word, that is, listening to the authority of God's Word, and obedience. Submitting as a servant unto a master in order to obey promptly upon the hearing of the Word. Now, this phrase joins others that are repeated twice. I want you to notice in verse 1, the Lord calls Abraham, He says, Here am I. But then in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, again, his name echoed from the uh, divine voice from glory. And he said, Abraham, here am I. Once again, Abraham answers. Now, note the context of these two affirmations of heeding God's word and obedience. The first is going to be a call to excruciating trial. And the first here am I, Abraham is being called to embrace an excruciating trial. And he says, Great faith. Here am I, Lord. I submit and I heed your word. Evidence of the work that God had done in his heart. In the second instance, the knife is stopped by the word of the angel of the Lord and the reassuring promises of the covenant evident in saving his, sparing his son death and providing a, sacrifice, a substitute instead. And Abraham answers, here am I. Here's an application for us. When the Lord's word brings a call to excruciating trial, will you answer, yes, Lord, here am I? Just the same as when the Lord's word gives glorious revelation of his covenant fulfilled, and you answer, here am I? You see, the life of faith as it grows is to heed and to obey the word of God in its full scope, the whole thing. Everything from the call of excruciating sacrifice, if you will, to the revelation of glorious promises in the covenant. Are you called to excruciating sacrifice? Think of the New Testament language. You're called, if necessary, to leave some of the most important and close relationships in your life if the gospel demands it. Jesus said that though it, sometimes he brings a sword to divide households, and you must, if your parents do not repent and believe in Christ as a child, born to them must sometimes choose between the preferences of the home in which you were born in and the command, the call to excruciating sacrifice of your Lord, Savior, and your ultimate Father, God. This is the reality of the sacrifice that sometimes attends those who confess and believe. Furthermore, we are called to lay down our lives, as Paul says, as a living sacrifice. And it is often, and I would say almost in every case, an excruciating trial, when God commands us to sacrifice something our flesh prefers in order for us to obey him? Will we heed his word and his call to excruciating sacrifice, to lay down our lives, to give up our rights, to present our preferences, even our physical body, as the Lord wills, as a living sacrifice to him? Jesus commands that those who follow him, that their call is marked by taking up their own cross, a call to excruciating trial in part to heed and obey and to serve. That's on the sacrificial end. The rest is a lot easier for us to realize. Keep them both in mind, however. The call to excruciating sacrifice is bearable when you realize it's not the only call. There is glorious reward for those who serve the Lord, and indeed the faithful recognize that His promises supersede death. So even if that call includes death, temporally speaking, we have in Christ eternal life, and the faithful realize it. The testing of Abraham, God's intentions, Abraham's submission. Just a brief note for further study. This pairing of identical phrases, here am I, here am I, there's five that I counted. You can do your own study. We'll reference a few more along the way. But notice, take your son, your only son, verse 2, That can be matched with verse 12, your son, your only son. And then again the phrase, three times repeated, verse 16, your son, your only son. This joins again another example. Abraham lifted up his eyes in verse 4. And 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes. In verse 6, both of them together is a phrase describing Abraham and Isaac involved in this event. That's echoed again in verse 8, both of them together. Abraham says in verse 8 again, god will provide and this is repeated as he names the place by the same phrase in verse 14 the lord will provide if we're on that uh as it is to this day on the mount of the lord it shall be provided so it's interesting to take note and just as a key for further study when the scriptures repeat things it's by way of emphasis and we'll see along the way some examples so God's intentions, Abraham's submission, finally faith and resurrection. The testing of Abraham reveals the connection between faith and resurrection. We open with this theme, but it only continues as the scriptures make it more clear. Abraham's faith cannot be understood outside, uh, outside of its connection to resurrection. Hebrews 11:19 19 tells us this. And the logic kind of goes as follows. God has promised me a son. He has said that only, we know this even from the excommunication of Ishmael, that only through Isaac will the covenant seed come, will the Messiah be born. Therefore, if God instructs me to kill him, I know he will raise him up again. Incredible faith. Real briefly, I'm thinking of my co-op class in hermeneutics, which means properly understanding a text. We've noted a few things. One is the difference between an extraordinary command and an ordinary command. So, kids, let me give you a little pop quiz. When God told Abraham to kill his son, was that an extraordinary command or an ordinary command? Is this something that everyone should do, or is this something extraordinary? Uh, Someone have an answer? Maybe one of you older ones? Extraordinary is correct. Thank you. So that is an important distinction to note in Scripture. This is an extraordinary moment. What God is not doing in this text is revealing his moral law with respect to the death of the innocent and the responsibility. No, something else is going on here. This is an extraordinary incident which will show God's purposes in the slaughter of another one to come, which we'll say more about later. And this is what's going on. So we recognize this. Nevertheless, faith and resurrection. Abraham believed that the same God who rose up, as it were, Isaac, from the dead womb, having experienced the resurrection power already from barrenness, God can and would, if necessary, do it again, raising his son up from the dead. The scriptures further expound. Note 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 17. We don't have time to cover it today, but you will see in context there that Paul says, if there's no such thing as resurrection, what does he say? Our faith is in vain. Resurrection and faith are inextricably linked. There is no Christian faith apart from the truth of resurrection. And this was taught not just by the apostle thousands of years later, but it was modeled in Abraham's experience right here. If Abraham did not believe in resurrection, his faith would be insufficient to pass this test. But because Abraham knew, and God had convicted him, that he was powerful to raise the dead, thus Abraham had Christian faith, if you will. Long before the time of Christ's physical arrival in time, he nevertheless knew that there would come one who would represent power over the grave, the promises of God that would supersede death. Now, let's contrast this with our day and age. So we are those, if you are a believer in this room today, who believe in the resurrection. Your worldview, your confidence, your consciousness in your best moments when you're walking in the Spirit is marked by a faith in the promises of one who has the power over death, and his promises supersede that last enemy. Now notice the direct conflict in our culture today to these ideals. Obsessive lifestyles are pursued in an infantile irresponsibility in a vain attempt to amuse ourselves and deny the inevitability of death. Our culture is rotting for fear of death and trying to counter for the reality of death by amusing themselves and distracting themselves and plastic surgery in there, I just made up a verb, themselves to deny that age and death are the greatest enemy. Now in Abraham's worst moments, he wasn't this stupid he at least realized that age and death were a reality. And think about it. All those genealogies in the book of Genesis, so-and-so lived X amount of years and he died. So-and-so lived X amount of years and he died. Death was a constant reminder in those who had their eyes at least open enough to realize it was a reality, and they lived a lot longer that time that, hey, there's a big problem here. And it freaked them out, as well it should. We are captive to the fear of death in another way. We distract ourselves and blind ourselves to its reality. And furthermore, we worship death. How, you might ask? Well, let me put it this way. For the philosophers in the room, let me give you a little mumbo-jumbo. We embrace the metaphysics of Darwinistic origin theory. What does that mean? Well, we embrace the reality, or we embrace the worldview Of big answers to big questions of evolution, the theory of evolution. And what do they presuppose? They presuppose that death is a feature of the system, not a bug, survival of the fittest, you know? And so, in this way, if you are into, if you basically adopt the worldview of evolution or Darwinism today, what you're doing is worshiping death. Death is the fatalistic predetermining mechanism that is sovereign over time. In Darwinistic evolution, death is the fatalistic predetermining mechanism that is in control of events over time. And that is perverse. That is stupid. That is to worship death. That is to be a demonically possessed by a darkness of the soul and mind and consciousness and so-called, you know, they call it so-called science, but that's just an appeal to authority. That's actually a a fallacy. But in reality, our culture worships death and our culture tries to distract themselves from death. And in this way, we today, as Abraham struggled then, are captive all our lives to the fear of death unless and until God awakens us to the faith in the promises of God, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, who has power over the last enemy. The testing of Abraham shows that this was God's intentions to reveal this kind of faith. Abraham's submission is an example for us, and it illustrates the connection between faith and resurrection that will be true of all of his people, even to today. Major point number two. The offering of Isaac in light of three contextual themes, uh, theme one, testing of Abraham. Theme two, the fire and the knife. So I can't resist this little anecdote. Wouldn't that make an awesome metal song? The fire and the knife. Maybe uh, for all the metal fans in the audience. And then I was like, I was thinking about that and I thought, oh man, there's so other great titles too. Superseding Death. Oh, that's an awesome title. And what was my other one? Oh, A Foretaste of Hell, which is yet to come. (laughs) Anyway, so if anyone's interested, you could theme a whole heavy album around these. They're heavy truths. I like sometimes uh, musical forms that can communicate some of the profound depths of Scripture. So I'm not going to sing this for you. That's just a suggestion for an artistic interpretation at a later time. Nevertheless, let us consider the meaning of the fire and the knife, verses 6-10. through 10. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac's son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, So they both, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Pause there. We'll continue a few more verses. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they went, both of them together. In this second passage, it continues, verse 9, they came, or second segment, they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And notice the next action that Abraham's about to take. Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. First of all, the fire. Now, let me just note that both of these, the knife and the fire will be absorbed by the substitute ram. The knife will not plunge into Isaac. The fire will not singe so much as a hair in his body. Why? Because a ram, a substitute sacrifice is provided who will be cut and who will be set on fire. The fire and the knife, the fire referring, could well represent the just wrath of God. We've already seen this in the course of Genesis. Kids, uh, were there two, there's two wicked cities I'm thinking of and God rained down fire on them as an instrument of judgment. Sodom and... That is correct. Very good. Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire, representing the just wrath of God. Now, when we compare this text, a word you could use, juxtapose this text, alongside another visitation of the angel of the Lord, it indeed helps us to understand. So the angel of, angels of the Lord, if you will, come and visit Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember this? This is a judicial reckoning, right? We covered this in prior messages. Verse 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And here we have the angel of the Lord coming to Abraham. Two angelic visitations, if you will. And both of them have a testing or investigative purpose. Both of them will reveal something, okay? And both of them involve fire. The Lord is featured in an act of judicial testing or probation or seeking out or investigation, with the events of Sodom and Gomorrah and here. Two angelic uh, visitors came, visited Abraham and Lot, prior to the fire of God raining judgment, the wrath of God, down upon those cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. And at that time, Abraham even joined their council And looking down upon the city. Incidentally, note, in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him, and where was the angel seated, as it were, from heaven? So we see this positional language, the angel of the Lord from heaven looking down, testing Abraham just as Abraham walks with the two angelic beings and looks down, as it were, in the divine council, looks down in Genesis uh, 19-ish upon Sodom and Gomorrah and then a determination is made. So in the context, when we compare these two things, it might be easier to understand what's going on here. Similar judgment or similar investigation... Two vastly different conclusions. Nevertheless, in both cases, the instrument of judgment, among the instruments of judgment, was fire. And what was the fire rained down from heaven? We have our uh, third metal album title. If not, a foretaste of hell. In Sodom and Gomorrah, when that fire rained down from heaven... We referenced this in prior messages as a foretaste of hell. That is, a picture of the deserving wrath of God upon an unrepentant people. And now we have fire again. A fire and a knife. But does that fire touch the body of Isaac? No, it does not. Why? Because a substitute stands in the way. And the message is this. You will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this life it may end in tragedy. It might end in in catastrophe as a foretaste of hell, and certainly if not that, upon your death, you will end up in hell unless someone is burned for you, if you will. Unless someone, more precisely, absorbs the wrath of God, which is simplified by fire, for you. And that is what is pictured in this text. That is the meaning of the fire. The fire representing the just wrath of God was there, present, and a real threat unless there was an intervention and a sacrifice, a substitute took the fire that we otherwise would deserve as the picture. Secondly, the knife. If the fire represents the just wrath of God, what does the knife represent? Kids, um, I asked you this recently, but remind us. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and can they just go back in? No. Why not? Very good. So there's an angel with a flaming sword, a blade, a knife, right? That stands guarding the entrance from uh, Adam and Eve, returning to the Garden of Eden. And this communicates to us that there is no return to reconciliation. There's no pathway to restored fellowship except through the sword. Now when Jesus was killed on Calvary, can't help but jump to the end. When Jesus was killed on Calvary, he was pierced on purpose As Isaiah 53 tells us, according to the plan and purposes of God, to absorb the knife, the sword judgment that you and I deserved in order that he, as our substitute lamb, as it were, might purchase safe passage for us back into Eden, so to speak, back into fellowship with God the Father. Now this is the knife borne by another that grants us safe passage to be restored to perfect fellowship with God. And Jesus took the knife for us. Just as in this picture, the ram took the knife for Isaac. So we have the fire and the knife. Now this is a theme throughout Scripture. Oh Man, I can't go on without illustrating this in context. Let me move to Genesis 15, two verses real quick, 9 and 10. Remember this? Genesis 15, 9 and 10. So he, this is the Lord speaking to Abraham. This is a, there's going to be a cutting of covenant in this passage. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10. And he brought him all these. That is, Abraham brought these animals to the Lord. Cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Abraham is familiar, intimately acquainted with the kind of cutting that takes place at a sacrifice. In Genesis 15, it was a covenant cutting ceremony whereby the objects of sacrifice, these animals, were literally split in two by the knife and separated. And then the Lord himself, in this self-harm oath, actually walked through those pieces indicating to Abraham, may I be like these animals if I do not keep my promise. Abraham knows quite well the use of the knife in the context of covenant sacrifice. Does that not add further context to here this uh, passage in Genesis 22? As Abraham lifts that knife above his head, he already knows the use of that knife in making sacrifice before the Lord. It is a staggering reality. The knife illustrates the wages of sin. Kids, finish the sentence for us. The wages of sin is? Shout it out. The wages of sin is? That's correct. And that knife or sword in the hand of the cherubim, that knife in Abraham's hand in Genesis 15 at that covenant slaughter, that knife in the hand of one who had performed circumcision, which was a sign that indicated that the wages of sin is death, that would mark the covenant faithful males their whole life long. That knife in the hand of Abraham right now, before his, as his son is about to be slaughtered, reminds us that the wages of sin is death. So we have the fire and the knife. And then finally, cooperation. Interesting, both of them together, so they went. Now, scholars assume Abraham, well, we know he's at least 100, well, he's more, quite more than 100. You know, uh, Isaac is able-bodied and so forth. He can accompany him in the way. He understands what's going on. He communicates in a sophisticated sense with his father. We don't know exactly Isaac's age, but he's no longer an unreasoning youth anymore, not anywhere close. And we do know Abraham is only getting older, surpassing the centennial year, you know, 100 years by however many years, Isaac is of age. So this is obviously a situation of cooperation. Kids, what do you think? If Isaac had, only Abraham and Isaac climbed this mountain. Kids, what do you think? If Isaac had wanted to get away, do you think he could have uh, ran away? Do you guys think so? Do you think he could have overpowered his 100, 100, let's say 20-year-old dad and ran away? Do you guys think? Yes, yes, probably he could have. But notice our text indicates that there is a cooperation between the two. It says they, both, they went, both of them. And again, in verse 8, they went, both of them, together. That's repeated twice. Now, um, in my co-op, cl- co-op class, we covered recently something called a chiastic structure. I've referenced this in um, sermons before, and it's kind of a unique structure. So just real briefly, chiasm is a shape of an X. It's a Greek, Greek letter. And so the idea structure is this. Scholars have noted this. I heard this in a podcast this week. It was kind of helpful. So this passage begins with God speaking, and then it goes to Abraham acting, and then there's this conversation, the only one of its kind, between Abraham and Isaac in Scripture, and then Abraham acts, and then God speaks. So you see that? There's a certain shape to it. God speaks, Abraham acts, conversation or cooperation. Abraham acts, God speaks. And so when you see this kind of structure in the text, The focal point is sometimes right in the middle. That is to say, even the way that this scripture passage is organized draws our attention to the conversation that Isaac has with Abraham. And what might that symbolize? How about the cooperation between God the Father and God the Son in the sacrificial self-giving of God's Son, His one and only beloved Son, Jesus Christ who went, and remember what Jesus said? I could, with one word, call down a legion of angels and destroy this the puny toy soldiers. I'm really paraphrasing. The puny toy soldiers of this Roman guard's ridiculous if you assume that I am going coerced by a tyrannical political figure or by the swords of these feeble uh, Roman guards that are, that are escorting me to Calvary. Jesus went to Calvary in cooperation with his Father. And this, theologians call the covenant of redemption, was an agreement that was made before time uh, began. Again, similar to that point made in the testing of Abraham, something known to the secret decree of God for eternity would be manifest for our benefit in time. When God the Father and God the Son cooperated in the self-giving, and we have. A foreshadowing of this very thing in this staggering event. The fire and the knife, the testing of Abraham, and finally the Lord's provision. Now, this scene is interrupted quite dramatically in verse 11. It's almost like a scene from a movie. You know, the music is built to crescendo. It's building tension. There's suspense. We're at the moment. For three days we've wondered, will he or won't he follow through with this incredibly excruciating act of obedience to kill his one and only covenant beloved son. Will he do it for three days and then a hike up the, up the mountain? And we don't know if Isaac will run away. And we're watching with rapt attention. The knife is lifted, 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 and the scene is interrupted from the angel of the Lord himself from glory, calling to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, that is the angel of, of the Lord do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God, the Lord's provision, it comes by way of the angel of the Lord. Who is this angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord calls to him again, Abraham, to Abraham in verse 15, a second time from heaven. And then our text next week, Lord willing, we'll skip ahead a bit in verse 16, note. And said, this is the angel of the Lord speaking, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. The angel of the Lord identifies himself as Yahweh. This is God himself. Scholars think a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. So Jesus Christ, tangible in some regard to Abraham, before Jesus was born in flesh. Nevertheless, God Himself intervenes to provide by His own power a sacrifice. Now, just to touch on Day's message one more time and the theme, a theme of last week's message, Psalm 113, accompanied by Philippians 2, we are staggered at the thought of how low our Lord stoops and how He reaches in His humble submission to the plan and purposes of redemption, to look down from heaven as it were, to take on the form of a servant as Paul describes Jesus' condition, to go to the lengths that Dave pointed out of washing his disciples' feet, a lowly task, indeed the task of a slave, and lower still the humiliating, excruciating death on the cross. And this is the angel of the Lord, who Psalm 113 describes our God as seated above the heavens, above the nations, and above us, and yet he looks down from heaven, and what does he do? He lifts up the poor and the needy from the dust and from the ash heap. And what else does he do? He causes them to sit at the privileged place of fellowship and table communion with princes. And what else does he do? He causes the barren woman like Sarah to be the joyous mother of children. We see this in our text. The angel of the Lord speaks from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and intervenes. Secondly, under the Lord's provision, there is an offering instead. What is provided? Do not lay your hand on the boy, verse 12, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. By the way, another repeated phrase, lifted up his eyes. We've taken the time to note these moments. Do you guys remember? Uh, remember, where did Lot lift up his eyes, kids? Lot lifted up his eyes to where? He was looking and longing to, towards something. You guys remember? Uh, yeah, that's good. The Jordan River or Valley, the cities of the plains. What else? Another, what were the cities that Lot was lusting after? Sodom and Gomorrah is correct. Lot lifts up his eyes to Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same passage, Abraham is called to lift up his eyes to the covenant promises of the land. Time and again, we have this language of directing the affections. It's an orientation of the soul. It directs or it uses picture language to describe the object of one's faith. And so in this passage, what is the object, the orientation of the affections, the direction of Abraham's soul? Well, first he lifts up his eyes to the place where the Lord will provide. He lifts up his eyes to, if you will, uh, proleptic, that means the word like uh, something to come. He lifts up his eyes to proto-calvary, if you will. He lifts up his eyes to the place that God will provide a sacrifice. At this point, as far as he knows, he will offer his son there, but that's where he lifts up his eyes nevertheless, as hard as it was. In verse 13, though, Abraham lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket, praise the Lord. Behind him, this ram, he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, knife and fire absorbed by the propitiary, that means wrath-absorbing sacrifice, the lamb. So this offering instead of Isaac is pictured in the text. Abraham lifts up his eyes, that representing the object of his faith, and he lifts them up to the place of provision, ultimately Calvary. And he lifts them up to the propitiary substitute sacrifice, the ram in the bush. This is a type of the sacrifice to come. One day, God the Father would place the instrument of death upon the shoulders of his own son. Jesus, just like Isaac, people have noted this. It's just a profound picture in the text as well. Just as Isaac carried the wood up the hill to his own sacrifice, at least that was the assumption... He was spared by a substitute, but there would be a beloved son who would carry wood up a hill, and his life would not be spared. And that was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you will, the Isaac to come, the significant son, the son of promise, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And he would carry the instrument of his own sacrifice up the hill, and he wouldn't, and God would not stay his hand this time. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him, and he was split by nails. He was split by a spear when the hand of the Lord through these instruments of fire and sword, if you will, his wrath and the wages of sin poured out upon our Messiah, killed him, slaughtered him as our sacrifice. This was the offering instead of us. Who was it? This was repeated three times in the text. His son, his only son. God the Father offers his son, his only son. His son, his only son, three times repeated in the text, fulfilled in time as an offering instead of us having to die. He sends the hill of sacrifice to die instead of sinners. And this brings us to the close and the title of our message. Where is this place? Abraham called the name of that place, verse 14, the Lord will provide. And Abraham Makes this an altar, or he recognizes the significance of this altar location, as it is said to this day. Thus, indicating the legacy continues on the mountain of the Lord. It shall be provided, and once again, in the category of what we don't have time to study today, go to First Chronicles 21 through 22:1 on your own time. You will find on Mount Moriah this very same hill. The son, of, or David himself, offers a sacrifice to stay God's sword judgment. The angel of the Lord was swinging his sword with pestilence on the people because of the federal uh, headship sin of David and taking a census. And it does not stop. The killing does not stop until a sacrifice is provided on this very same mountain. And guess where the temple was built? Well, David purchased that threshing floor of Ornan, and he eventually commissioned the temple his son would build right on that very plot of ground. And this can't be far from where our Messiah was killed. And that testimony is being proclaimed to you in this message today. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And we hasten to say with the full testimony of Scripture, on that mount of the Lord, it has been provided. Praise His holy name. This is the message we proclaim to the world that thinks the Bible doesn't make sense. Why do they think that? Because they're lost in their transgressions and sins because they're captive all their life to the fear of death. Pray that through the proclamation of the scriptures, their eyes might be open. They might see for the first time the substitute provided. God's son, his only son. God's son, his only son. And we repeat yet a third time as we proclaim the only hope of salvation. So long as there's breath in our lungs and the Lord has endured with this wicked generation. God's son, his only son, has been provided. Repent and believe. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the moving testimony of our forefathers' faith, Abraham, who placed his hope not in himself, his own works, but looked to that which was provided for him that allowed his son to escape the sword and fire of judgment. And this pictured a father to come who would provide his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we might escape the sword and fire of judgment. His name we proclaim today as the only hope for salvation. We pray that that message would resound loud and clear in a day where pe- when people worship death and are held in captivity and fear to its reality. We thank you, Jesus, that you endured the wages of sin and, di- and that the hand of the Father was not stayed when you took in your own flesh the consequences of our transgression that we might be saved. Let us always find refuge in these truths and let us be emboldened like Abraham so that when tested, we can look to the promised son to give us the confidence to proclaim the absolute truth that can rescue man from his depravity and hell and, enter and uh, escort him into glorious reunion with God the Father through the one way, truth and life, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.